Welcome to Crashing the War Party, where we try to make sense of all the rotten policies in Washington that have mired America in conflict. I'm here with Daniel Larson and Barbara Bolin, and we are proud to represent the skeptics of the world who do not take the government's word on anything at face value, especially when foreign policy and national security are concerned. There's just too much bad blood and awful history to think otherwise. Speaking of which, the United States plans to have all of its troops out of Afghanistan this summer after 20 years of war. By all accounts, that war has failed. Instead of stopping with the routing of the al-Qaeda terrorists responsible for 9-11, we stayed in this two-decade war mission to rebuild the government, democratize the country, and stand up the Afghanistan National Security Forces. Even when senior members of the military and diplomatic corps were privately saying the war could not be won. Washington kept sending troops year after year. The Taliban, far from defeated, were emboldened. New terror groups and an Al-Qaeda splinter organizations flourished. Even ISIS has come in for a piece of the action. Now, as we are leaving the Taliban, is taking over territory and engaging the weak Afghan national security forces. Terrorist bombings are becoming commonplace. As if to put salt in the wounds, Hamid Karzai, who the U.S. stood up as president for years, recently gave an interview where he basically told the U.S. not to let the door hit him in the ass on the way out. In his words, quote, the international community came here 20 years ago with this clear objective of fighting extremism and bringing stability, but extremism is at the highest point today, so they have failed. Their legacy in this war-ravaged nation is, quote, total disgrace and disaster. Nevertheless, he is happy the U.S. is leaving for, quote, defend, we want to, quote, defend our own country and look after our own lives. Their presence has given us what we have now. We don't want to continue this misery and indignity that we are facing. It is better for Afghanistan that they leave, end quote. As of this recording, the Taliban are entering key provincial capitals with the aim of taking them over. This after 12 local districts have fallen to the extremists over the last month. Kabul isn't even safe. So what does this all mean? Dan, do you sense the Biden administration might be pressured to leave troops there or modify its commitment to leave? Uh, I, well, there'll certainly be pressure coming from Congress. We We know uh, there there's already been a lot of criticism coming from the Republican side, as you would expect, uh, trying to to paint Biden as uh, as weak, as an appeaser, uh, trying to set this up as the you know, the next fall of South Vietnam, uh, to try to make uh, a lot of hay out of it. Uh, the the th- the reason I don't think it's going to work is that Biden understands that things are going to get worse in Afghanistan, and he's not particularly concerned about it. Um, it's true it doesn't look good uh, for him, but it's not the kind of thing where he's going to go rushing back in to try to salvage the situation. He understands that Afghanistan, that the current Afghan government isn't going to be able to defend itself effectively. And uh, as long as the threat to the United States is kept in check, uh, that's fine by him. Uh, the well, What I think the, the current state of the Afghan government shows is that despite 20 years of funding and arming and training uh, and supporting these forces, they're, they're still incapable of providing for their own defense. And I mean, that part of that is our fault because we made them so dependent on our contractors and on our air support. Uh, we didn't actually make them into a self-sufficient force because I think in the back of a lot of people's minds, 
the way to keep the war going was to keep the Afghan government helpless. And then when we finally do decide to leave, uh, they're stuck with a, a military that can't effectively fight. And so I, I think it's it's an, a really an indictment of our policy up till now. And it's not really a, an indictment of Biden that he finally decided to, to call it quits. Because what have we been doing all this time if the Afghan military is so helpless that it can't defend itself? What do you think, Barbara? Do you think we're actually going to get out? What do you think it's going to look like after September 11th when the deadline supposedly that we'll be fully withdrawn from Afghanistan? Well, I guarantee you there's going to be a flurry of op-eds in the New York Times and the Washington Post uh, before the deadline all about how we're abandoning the women of Afghanistan and we're abandoning. I mean, you see already that the Taliban is is successful in its military campaign in northern Afghanistan. And we know that, but we've been, this has been said now for years. I was just rereading an article I wrote about Pakistan's role in this Afghanistan mess. And I wrote that almost three years ago now. And I had interviewed the ambassador, a former ambassador from Pakistan to the U.S., uh, Hussein Haqqani, and he still speaks about this. But what's crazy is you could have written that same article today. Everything that he said, everything that everybody in that article said is all still true. They were talking back then about just waiting out the clock until America leaves because America is always only six months away from leaving and is always saying we're only six months away from leaving. So in their mind, they just hang on a little bit longer. It's their home. So it's not like they have to travel far away or invest a lot of money to hang on a little bit longer than we do. They always know they're going to win the waiting game because it's not our home. So the reality here is that this is the writing on the wall has been here for a long time now. I don't think that Biden is going to, based on his speech and just on him generally, and also the state of the political situation and COVID here in the United States, I don't think he's going to go back on what he said, but I do think he's going to get a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure to change his mind or keep more people there or invest more assets or some other way, whether it's maybe putting military uh, U.S. Army forces in some other location nearby to help out, quote unquote. And it's such a shame because this government that we're helping out in Afghanistan is, is only shades of gray better than the Taliban. Right. And um, as you were saying that, I, I was just looking at a, an article that had come out recently in which... Um, you know, Secretary of Defense Austin uh, said that, you know, the uh, withdrawal is on pace, quote unquote, um, but it is a dynamic situation in the nation, as they say, and that they are, quote, constantly looking at the pace we're going at and the capabilities we have and the capabilities that we're going to need throughout to complete the withdrawal, quote unquote. Uh, this is coming from, uh, let's see, it's uh, the, um, sorry, the spokesperson 
for the Pentagon. And, you know, so he's suggesting that, yes, we are still planning to get out of Afghanistan by September, but because of the dynamics on the ground there, which we know aren't good, that they are looking and assessing the pace of that withdrawal. <laughs> Very mixed messages coming in. They've also extended uh, the, uh, I guess, the deployment of the USS Eisenhower in the region. Uh, he says nobody is discounting how difficult this is, uh, but difficult does not mean impossible. And we have the ability right now <laughs> to reach any scrap of earth that we believe we need to should the risk warrant it. And that is why they're keeping uh, the aircraft carrier in the region. So I, this doesn't sound good to me. It, it does sound like they are keeping the options open uh, for staying in the region, maybe even staying in the in the country. And as you mentioned, Barbara, lots of pressure on Biden right now, uh, looking at the news and looking at the Taliban taking over all of these very key provincial districts and Kabul feeling a little bit vulnerable right now. There's been continued uh, bombings going on there. And um, you have people like Hamid Karzai talking smack uh, publicly. And I understand uh, that uh, at some point, Ashraf Ghani, the current president, will be visiting Washington. He may have already by the time this recording is done. But um, I think that there is significant pressure on on the president. What do you think about that, Dan? Uh, no, there, there is. Uh, there is. There's been uh, a concerted effort uh, in Congress and in the media uh, among uh, hawkish pundits to to place their markers and say Biden is making a huge mistake. Biden is uh, making a terrible blunder. Uh, he's doing what Obama did in Iraq, which you know the the assumption being that Obama's withdrawal from Iraq was a mistake, uh, which is hardened or sort of congealed into conventional wisdom in some parts of D.C. Uh, but I, I still don't buy it because there there was no argument then for our presence doing any real good in Iraq. And I think there's not much of an argument for a residual presence being able to do much against the Taliban today. Uh, at best, it's delaying the inevitable uh, by keeping them uh, from taking over the entire country. But unless you're prepared to treat Afghanistan as a protectorate and to, and to essentially turn it into a ward of the United States for the rest of our lives, you you can't keep doing that. Uh, so you have to, at some point, uh, cut bait. And that's, and that's what Biden has done. And I think he, he recognized that if he tied the withdrawal to conditions in the country, that it would never happen. Because conditions-based withdrawal is the same as never withdrawing. Uh, because there will always be something happening uh, that's bad enough that you can use it as a reason to stay. And, and Biden, Biden ruled that out. Yeah. Well, for the president... And for any president, whether it's Trump or Biden or a future president in a situation like Afghanistan, is it's a complete catch-22 politically. Because if they pull out and anything bad happens, it's the president's fault for pulling out. That whatever bad happens in Afghanistan can be pinned on. And you know that that's what they'll say, that it's Biden's fault that we left. Anything that happens with the Taliban hurting women, even though there's horrible things that are currently occurring in Afghanistan right now under the current government, and it's horribly corrupt, and it's still it's mainly trafficking in heroin, we're not going to talk about that. That's not going to be publicized. So it's still going to be 
owned by the president for pulling out because he's the one making that decision. But on the other hand, if he doesn't pull out and an American dies, God forbid, but it, or if he has to invest more resources in order to keep the Taliban from taking over more cities, then it, there's even more chances. And I think Biden, more than maybe other presidents, does understand that the risk of that more assets that are more American assets that are invested there, the more likelihood that somebody that there will be people who are killed. And then whether that's a big publicity problem or not, it's still a weight on the president's conscience and shoulders that he's responsible for that. And for what? Like, what do we gain as America? What are we really getting from Afghanistan? We've now been there for 20 years. It's still pretty much the same mess that it was when we got there. It's still the same forces that we're talking about. The Taliban is still there. We really were not able to, we can't resolve this problem for them. And no matter how hard or how earnest we are about the causes, we can't make democracy or education for women happen for them. It's something they have to do for themselves. Well, you brought up uh, Pakistan, Barbara, and uh, recently uh, the president of Pakistan, uh, Imran Khan, had a op-ed in the Washington Post, uh, prime minister rather, uh, saying that Pakistan will not house U.S. troops. So there was some expectation that the U.S. might be able to launch counterterrorism attacks if necessary uh, to protect the government there or maybe not that, but I mean, just for counterterrorism in general from over the border. And uh, Khan has said, no, uh, we don't want to be, they don't want to be a base for operations against the Taliban. How interesting. Yeah. But it's almost like, yeah, but why would you really blame them? Because if, if we start housing troops there, they basically, there will be a civil war on their end. And so, um, well, it also confirms the theory though, that they've been supporting the Taliban in, in Afghanistan this whole time. I yeah, mean, it really, really confirm that we knew that the fact yeah. is they just don't want to like draw fire on their end because if 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 they have been had this tenuous relationship with the Taliban all these years and then we say okay U.S. troops come here and we're going to fight the <sighs> Taliban together they're just putting a bullet or a, a target on their own backs and he all but says that in the the op-ed he says we don't want to be a target. Uh, for well, Taliban and that just goes to show you how ridiculous this entire exercise is for us as America to try to get rid of the Taliban when the people in the region are much more hesitant and cautious right. and afraid to do so themselves. If Pakistan and Afghanistan can't figure out how to do this themselves, why the hell are we yeah. investing in it? Well, and that gets back to I think Biden's reasoning for getting out is that whatever security benefits the U.S. may have gained from originally intervening, uh, th- those gains have already been banked and we're not going to get anything more out of it. And, and the, the threat posed to the U.S. Uh, from militants there is small enough that it's an acceptable risk to, to pull out. There, there are lots of places all around the world that suffer from civil wars, that suffer from uh, armed militias, uh, but we don't feel compelled to go in and try to police that. Uh, because we got this mythology going about the, the safe haven, and Afghanistan was the safe haven for al-Qaeda, 
uh, everyone uh, became obsessed with rooting them out of there in particular, even though Al-Qaeda branches, Al-Qaeda franchises have cropped up all over the globe as a result of the war on terror. So it's not as if terrorist uh, activity has declined overall as a result of what we've been doing in Afghanistan. In fact, it's, it's spread to lots of other places. Yeah. So right. it's, and it's not, uh, it's not in our security interest to stay. It's also interesting. You're making a good point there because when you think about it, this, this question too, about if we pull out, um, you know, education for women is going to go down the drain. Think about the fact that we never invaded to stop Boko Haram. Right. And that's the same. If, if, why do we privilege one country and one group of people having their women educated or saved from Islamists over another group where they're literally kidnapping and killing, you know, young girls in order that they should, their name, their very name, Boko Haram means, uh, is, has to do with that education for women is, is forbidden. So we don't, think it's necessary to invade Nigeria to stop Boko Haram, we would never even dream of doing such a thing. But we have to stay endlessly in Afghanistan because we're already there. I mean, it, that, that, that there's no logic in that. It's like an emotional argument, that, that, sure. that, but and you're going to hear it in the media. Oh, we, we'll, we'll definitely hear it. And it, I mean, it's one of these rationalizations that people came up with after the fact, after we were already committed yeah. to the war. Uh, in, in the same way that all of the democracy promotion rhetoric was added on uh, for the Iraq war and for the Afghanistan war after the fact to, to try to put a sort of a nice spin on it uh, so that we, you know, we weren't just fighting for our own security, uh, however that was imagined at the time, uh, but we were also fighting for other people's freedom. And so it, it was a, a way to make the wars seem uh, sort of more high-minded uh, than they really were. Uh, and you know, this is, so people weren't, itching to go spread democracy to Afghanistan as such. Uh, but when that became useful to the pro-war argument, then that got added in. Yeah. And I think that the most important thing to watch this summer, or at least over the course of the next month or so, um, is how committed the Pentagon is to leaving and whether or not they keep sending out these mixed messages about pacing about um, staging for counterterrorism, their regional capabilities uh, to respond to terror attacks. What I'm watching is whether or not the Biden administration is convinced, maybe through Congress or the Pentagon, that somehow we have to protect Kabul from falling. And from what I hear, Kabul is not an imminent um, risk for falling, but it's not looking too good. And it could, within the year, fall to the Taliban. Now, are we, the United States, uh, obligated to protect Kabul from falling, um, seeing that we will be continuing to invest in the Afghan security troops, other forms of aid? And I feel like we need to keep our ears out because this could signal a you know, a, uh, a re-entering commitment or mission to stay either in Afghanistan or just over the border, and that this war really hasn't ended, at least for us. I think it's kind of important to stress, though, that 
for years we have known that that this would happen if we left. So should should we leave and that happen? That's exactly what was expected. And that this civil war in Afghanistan is only being slightly put off by the fact that we have troops there. And it's not even put off because there's been these ongoing like small ceasefires that get a little bit um, either followed or not followed. And then there's car bombs. And we don't cover it a lot in the American press, but that's what's going on. In Afghanistan, it's an ongoing civil war. And it's been happening this whole time. If we pull out, it'll just necessitate what is already happening and has been happening. So we welcome to the show Ben Freeman. Uh, who is the director of the Foreign Influence Transparency Initiative at the Center for International Policy, where he works to expose how foreign governments are influencing U.S. public policy and elections. His work builds upon his own book, The Foreign Policy Auction, which was the first book to systematically analyze the foreign influence industry in the United States. Before launching this transparency initiative, Freeman was the deputy director of the National Security Program at Third Way. Prior to joining that, he served as a National Security Fellow at the Project on Government Oversight, where he spearheaded the creation of the Foreign Influence Database, a repository of propaganda distributed by foreign agents that was previously unavailable online. Uh, I love... Ben, I love his work. Uh, He recently published a study, a report uh, with the Quincy Institute's Eli Clifton called Restoring Trust in the Think Tank Industry. He has done reams of research on foreign policy or rather the foreign influence in, in think tanks in Washington and the corrupt hold that money and that influence has on our members of Congress um, and our, our policy, things that are going on on Capitol Hill every day. So I'm so excited to have you on this show, Ben. Kelly, it's an honor to be here. Thank you so much for that great introduction. I, you know, I, I'd be remiss not to ask you about this report uh, right off the bat, Restoring Trust in the Think Tank Industry. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the problem? Because I think a lot of folks outside the Beltway think of think tanks as, you know, these organizations, they're generating all sorts of reports and papers, and they testify in Congress, and members listen to them, and and things happen, but they don't necessarily know uh, the sort of seamy underbelly of how they are influenced by outside actors, and in particular, outside money. So can you maybe lay out what the problem problem is that you guys have identified in that paper and maybe some of the solutions as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the thing about think tanks is right off the bat, once you get outside the beltway, most folks don't know what the heck you're talking about when you say that you work at a think tank. They, they hear that term and then, and then you, when you describe it, it gets even worse. Uh, wait, 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 they pay you to think for a living? Um, and then, of course, that's when your crazy uncle goes into uh, his spiel about everything he knows about politics. Like, never mind any of the letters you've got behind your name or any of that stuff. Everybody's all too eager to tell you what they feel. 
But even amongst those that do know what a think tank is, the real problem is that uh, folks just don't trust them anymore. Uh, trust in think tanks is at an incredible low level. Uh, only one in five people actually trust think tanks now. And, and this reflects a lot of what we're seeing uh, across politics and across government. You know, trust in government is now at historic lows. And people who know what think tanks are know that think tanks play a big role in the government and policy space. Um, and whether you realize it or not, Think tanks are working directly with members of Congress. In some cases, they're writing hearing questions. They're writing talking points. They're writing the speeches that members of Congress are given. In fact, it goes so far as some think tanks will even write the legislation that members of Congress are introducing. So in every possible facet of the policy process, in the governing process, think tanks are right there doing it. In addition to all that stuff, too, they, they also have maybe the, the, the not-too-popular nickname of being called holding tanks. Um, and, and that's to indicate that whenever there's a, an administration or a party leaves power, uh, uh, those folks from uh, who are in that administration will very often go to think tanks and kind of wait out the next four years to eight years of the next party's turn to govern. And when they do that, they're just sitting at these think tanks. They're sort of holding there for when their party gets back in power, then they can go back into office. They can get some of these cabinet appointments and all that sort of stuff. The problem that Eli and I tried to tackle in that paper uh, was about the funding behind think tanks. And we know it's not free to keep the lights on. Uh, and, and, and think tanks are technically a nonprofit, but the money that they're receiving can very often guide the work that they're doing. And through, through Eli's just wonderful investigative work and, and, and some of my uh, sort of more nerdy social science work, um, we, we, we've done a lot of, uh, uh, of identifying exactly where think tank money is coming from. And w what we found is a, a lot of think tanks are getting a lot of money uh, from people we might want to be a little concerned about, like foreign governments uh, and uh, folks involved in the military-industrial military complex. Some of the biggest donors to think tanks are also the biggest manufacturers of U.S. weapons. They're the biggest DOD contractors. Uh, and so then what Eli and I have done over the years, we've we, we followed the money, and we've said, okay, well, we know they're getting this money. What's coming out on the back end? And all too often that we've seen these think tanks that are getting money from foreign governments, producing research, testifying, doing things that would benefit that foreign government. They're doing the same thing for their defense contractors, too. Uh, if they're getting money from a defense contractor, uh, these are the think tanks that are that are right now actually saying kudos to Biden for the defense budget. You, 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 you know, way to keep it high, buddy. Way to keep things going. Way to keep the military industrial complex flowing. They, of course, don't use those terms, but you can read between the lines and everything they do. And you can very clearly see how that funding uh, at least appears to be influencing that work. And so what Eli and I have done, uh, we've been... Uh, We've been throwing stones uh, effectively at a giant glass house, but it's a bulletproof house, and so it's hard to crack it uh, for, for years now. And, and so we took a new tack this time around, and, and that was to say, we're going to tell think tanks how to do better. There's this problem. You're not trusted. We're going we're gonna to try and help you a little bit and, 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 and talk about how you can get trusted. 
and it's really a basic three-step process that we lay out. Step number one, be transparent. We want think tanks to have full, full financial transparency. Number two, in some cases, when you're getting money, transparency may not be enough. You may have to go to the next level if you're getting funding from a foreign government, and then you're effectively acting as an agent of that foreign government. In that case, you might have to register under the Foreign Agents Registration Act. And we walk through sort of the situations where you might have to register under the Foreign Agents Registration Act, or as we call it, FARA. And then finally, number three, even if you've got all that stuff out there, we want think tanks to be proactive about the appearance of conflicts of interest. N not just if there, if there is a conflict of interest, we of course want you to, to declare that, but if it even might look like there's a conflict of interest. If you're writing a report, say, on Saudi Arabia, and we know you're getting funding from Saudi Arabia, just be open and honest about it. You, you know, put that front and center in the report. Uh, we, we do it at the Center for International Policy. I know the Quincy Institute does it too. You put all that stuff front and center, and then you let the readers be the judge. This is the only. These are the basic steps that we think you need. Uh, think tanks need to do to, to to even start to regain the public's trust. Absolutely, Ben. Uh, thanks for spelling all of that out. Uh, but one of the things that I, I think has contributed to that loss of trust in think tanks is the not just the perception, but the reality that many of them uh, really are uh, advocacy groups now. They're they're pushing uh, for a definite set of policies uh, that not only benefit certain foreign governments, but that also benefit uh, certain ideological factions here in the U.S. Uh, and so they, they basically become a, a vehicle for providing kind of a scholarly veneer uh, for this, this very kind of raw power agenda that they're, they're trying to push through. And I mean, I, you know, I, I have in mind, of course, uh, FDD uh, basically being the source of the Trump administration's Iran policy and basically authoring that policy and, and essentially telling them, okay, these are the sanctions you need to impose. And then sure enough, within a few months, these are the sanctions that get imposed. And so it, th there's this degree of collusion between think tanks and uh, members of government that I, I think explodes the idea that these are just independent uh, scholars offering their expertise, right? Uh, and, and so that's, that's one of the, the big problems that we have with them. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. And, you know, think tanks, I think, in theory, like to refer to themselves as the, the bridge between the Ivy Tower and the halls of Congress. Um, I think in reality, what many think tanks are now is a bridge between lobbying firms and the halls of Congress. Uh, because, the, the, Daniel, I, I completely agree that they're doing exactly what you say in many cases. It's incredibly hard to d distinguish the work that a think tank does from a lobbying firm that, that's hired by one of these foreign powers or, or by the, the, a part of the military industrial complex. So it, it, it's really just a difference in name. And it, it, it's, I think that's the problem. That's certainly the problem that we have, and I think that's the problem that the public has with with think tanks and the, the, the think tank experts is that they feel like they're being duped, and, and they feel like the, they're you know DC the swamp is just trying to pull the the, the wool over their eyes, um, and, and that's really the problem. If think tanks want to get back to that level of trust, they're going to have to be open and honest about exactly what's going on, exactly what they're doing. 
definitely. And I, I hope that we, we can see uh, some of that in, in the, the coming years. Uh, turning to lobbying itself, especially lobbying on behalf of foreign governments, uh, you wrote a new report uh, in the last uh, month or so on Saudi lobbying efforts, uh, and your report details the extent to which they've now taken their show on the road outside of Washington to the States. And the, the Saudi ambassador uh, has now visited uh, a number of places uh, as far flung as Wyoming and Colorado. Uh, what, why is it that the Saudis are doing this, and how many connections have they made uh, out there in the States? Uh, the simple answer is they were getting their butts kicked in the beltway. <laughs> uh, all jokes aside, I, I, they were they were losing fight after fight here in D.C. and largely they, they were losing the fights because of of their own blunders. I mean, you, you look across from just about every every way. The, the, the Saudi monarchy could have possibly flubbed up on, on the international stage. They were doing it. Um, and, and you can go back to go back to the war in Yemen um, and, and just the disastrous war in Yemen, the humanitarian crisis there. Saudis killing civilians uh, seemingly indiscriminately doing it with U.S. bombs and, and U.S. assistance from refueling, targeting assistance. So, you know, the U.S. being implicated in that, too, that absolute disaster. Um, fast forward a little bit from there. And, and there's the Qatar blockade, which is this big, big push from the Saudis and the Emiratis. Um, and of course, th th that left the U.S. standing there sort of befuddled. Um, and I think it took Donald Trump a, a few days to realize that, oh, yeah, the largest the largest U.S. presence in the Middle East is in Qatar. <laughs> um, so, so maybe, you know, he initially came out and he was, you know, very pro-Saudi on it. But then I think one of his advisors whispered in his ear and then he's like, oh, never mind. You know, we're going to stay on the sidelines now. Um, and so that, that, that was a debacle for U.S. foreign policy, too. And, and then, of course, you, you, you fast forward to the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, which garners the Saudis' condemnation here in the U.S. and, and around the world. Um, and that wasn't even done either. I, I, folks might have missed it in the early 2020 news. Um with the pandemic raging on and everything. But then the Saudis get into an oil spat with Russia and effectively drive the price of oil uh, down to zero. If oil futures were negative at one point, it was just an insane time. Um, and what that led to is a lot of uh, a lot of senators and members of Congress from oil producing states calling up uh, Ambassador uh, Assad and just being like, what the heck are you doing? And they were just furious with her. And so what what the Saudis did that with all those blunders happen, they're, they're losing D.C. They're even losing, you know, traditional folks that might support them, Republican hawks who want to keep those arms flowing to Saudi Arabia. They're losing them even. And so what what they've effectively done is they've taken the battle to the states and, and they've started. I call it an astroturfing campaign um, because you, you, you can't call it grassroots when it's a it's a Gulf monarchy that's going to Wyoming and trying to drum up constituent support for it. it it's absolutely astroturfing. And what they do, they'll go into some of these small towns, you know, medium sized cities. 
they'll try to organize an event, um, have the ambassador come out and speak, have the embassy spokesperson come out and speak or, or write an op-ed, you know, talk on the radio, what, what, what have you. And then one firm does that. This is a firm uh, called LS2. Um, and then another firm, uh, a, a DC powerhouse, Hogan Lovells, will then come back and send out some press releases and, and contact the members of Congress whose district that event was in and say, look at this, this natural, organic, amazing thing happened in your district. It looks like your constituents love us. You know, we, we're so beloved by your people, so maybe you should love us again. And of course, I think any astute staffer or member of Congress is going to see right through that, but but they don't say, they, they don't tell anybody, uh, oh, by the way, um, the Saudi lobby actually put on that event that we're telling you about now. So again, it's it's just incredibly deceptive. I, I frankly don't think it's it's working that well, but it's not for lack of trying. They, they've contacted almost 2,000 people outside the Beltway. They, they've had these operations or, or these events in, in almost half of all states, 23 states now. They've had e- either one of these events, op-eds, you know, radio, um, radio interviews. So they're really getting out there. They're really pushing this. Just goes to show you that the Saudis never met a problem they can't throw money at. Um, I wanted to return to a something that you mentioned when, um, in one of your first answers about think tanks or people that work at think tanks sometimes writing legislation. And we also know that lobbyists on K Street often write legislation. And I think you and I were in a thread on Twitter about why this is, and I'd like you to just maybe answer a little bit about why that happens. And maybe how salary affects that, congressional staff salary and inexperience. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think it's it's what, if you want to get to the, the, the root of a, a lot of these problems, um, for me, I'm, I'm a follow the money kind of guy. Um, and, and I, I think, I think following the money, what, what people don't realize the sort of the seductive thing about following the money is looking at the big money. You know, you know, you know, we talk about the Saudis spending a lot on, on lobbying and PR, you know, multi-million dollar contracts I, and, you know, with, with arm sales, the same thing, billions of dollars in arm sales, you know, we like to look at these big numbers, but I think a, a lot of the problems in the swamp actually start from small numbers and small dollars. And and, and specifically what I'm talking about there are the small salaries of of most congressional staffers. Most of the folks that that are working uh, for for senators and and for members of Congress, most of them barely make a living wage or don't, in fact, make a living wage. They are actually working and accumulating debt while they are working to write the nation's laws. These are the people, they're, they're incredibly overworked. You know, they're working 60, 70 hours a week, uh, a week for, for chump change. 
they, they don't have enough time to do all the work that, that they need to get done. And so inevitably what they have to do, because they're so stressed and taxed, they have to turn to, to, to lobbying firms. They have to turn to think tank expertise to help them with their different issues because they're so overstressed. And so that's when it, it creates this sort of you know, inroad because they're, they don't have enough time. They have to go to the quick solutions. And lobbyists are all too eager. You know, It's like, oh, you need help writing legislation? We got you. In fact, we've already got the Sadly, legislation ready for you. <laughs> Sadly, the lobbyists are often former congressional staffers with 10 years of experience, whereas the congressional staffers are zero to two years experience. So it's yeah. really, really sad. That's exactly right, Barbara. And then, and the, the, the other thing about having that low salary is uh, in accumulating that debt while you're doing it, when, when you do get a few years experience, like you're mentioning there, and a lobbying firm then comes to you and says, you know what, we can quadruple your salary overnight. We, you, you know, we, we can literally take you from a, a $40,000 a year salary to one hundred dollars or $200,000. What would that mean for you and your family? And, and with the price of D.C. real estate, with the price of child care in D.C., with all those things for, for those young staffers looking to take those next steps in their life, in many cases, they can't do it on a congressional salary. So when a lobbying firm comes in and offers them this huge financial windfall, for, for many folks, it's all too tempting to take it, to cash in on their expertise, and then become lobbyists themselves. Yep. You know, Ben, what you're describing, you know, I, I think a lot of people out there listening have no idea of this revolving door and how it works and how influential that, you know, former members of Congress and their staff, how influential they are on current policy and what role they play uh, in crafting legislation on a daily basis and then bring in lobbyists and bring in think tanks. And, and you know, and I guess at a certain level, you said, okay, that kind of makes sense. You want the people that have the expertise, you know, playing a role in, in writing bills and, uh, you know, advising members of Congress but I think what you and Eli have gotten to is the, the money aspect. And when you bring in uh, contributions from defense contractors, from foreign governments, from uh, entities that are connected with foreign governments, that sort of takes the, the picture. And uh, people see a, a certain amount of corruption in that. My, my last question to you, since we're almost out of time, is how much backlash have you and Eli received from the think tank community? Because I know personally working with Eli that he's gotten a few nasty grams about this because academics don't want to think or they don't want to hear this idea that they are being unduly influenced by, by uh, cash and particularly coming from industry or foreign governments, and they get very defensive when you suggest that maybe their outputs are influenced by that money, the whole pay for pay, play for pay idea. So have you gotten a lot of backlash? Uh, <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> I, yes. And it, 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 and I only laugh because I, I, you know, I'm at the point in my career, and I think Eli is too. That with the work that we do, if if we didn't get backlash 
I would, I would think that I failed in whatever I did, frankly. Right. Like, if I'm not, if nobody's getting upset about the work that I'm doing, then why did I do that? Like, what was the, what was the purpose of that thing if somebody didn't get upset? Because there's, I frankly think there's, you know, there's so much to get upset about in this crazy, you know, pay for play system that that is Washington D.C. That if I'm I'm doing good investigative research and it's not, a, you know, you, you, you know, tipping over somebody's apple cart, um, I'm, I'm doing something wrong. <laughs> but the direct answer to your question is, I many times, and, and um, you, know, you know, we've now this this report that I did with Eli was uh, my third report specifically uh, on think tanks and you know tackling think tank funding. Um, and, and in all of these reports, we we have always had folks from think tanks. Uh, uh, Come, you know, come at, you know, send me the nasty emails. Um, but the interesting thing about it is, too, I have also on the other side, I've gotten some very complimentary um, uh, remarks from folks at think tanks too. Uh, you, you know, commending, you know, commending the report, commending the research, um, even from you know unlikely places. Uh, the, the Heritage Foundation, for example, um, commended our report on on, on foreign uh, funding of think tanks when last fall, Secretary. Pompeo uh, said he was going to require think tanks to fully disclose their foreign funders, and in, in Heritage Foundation's announcement of praising that, they also mentioned that our our, our report on foreign funding of think tanks. Uh, so we're surprised at that too. But another thing, I think we, at the very least, with all these reports, we started a conversation about think tank transparency and about think tank funding, and we've we've kind of put you know hard concrete numbers to people's suspicions about how much funding we're, we're talking about at think tanks. And so, you, you know, if I get the occasional nasty gram or, you know, folks are, you, you know, adding me on Twitter and everything, it, it, you know, it's I, also another one that I get whenever I, 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 whenever I put out one of these think tank reports, um, Dan Dresner, um, who's, who's an academic who I, who I, I really uh, respect, he, he'll write a piece for his column in the Washington Post that's effectively saying there's a new report out on think tank funding. But it's not a big deal. <laughs> Don't worry about it here. And you, you know, let me tell let me tell you why it's nothing to worry about. And then there's always a caveat at the end. Oh, by the way, I work with a bunch of think tanks. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, thanks, Dan, for highlighting the report. <laughs> you know, moving on. Wow. Well, thank you so much for coming on our program. Uh, we are just delighted with all the work that you do, and you know, we we are trying to be a platform for you and for others who are doing this heavy lifting in terms of, you know, putting you know putting Washington under a microscope and you know, kind of you know, trying to hold our members of Congress and these think tanks and other parts of the ecosystem accountable for the work they do, um, you know, for so supposedly for the American people. So uh, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you so much for having me. It's been, it's been a pleasure. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack 
at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time. Thank you.